Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. For this reason we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking, but one has testified somewhere saying, What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to Him, He left nothing that is not subject to Him. But now, we do not yet see all things subjected to Him. But we do see Him, who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely, Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. What if God was one of us? Remember the song? Some of you do. It was 1995. Reached number 10 on VH1's top 41 hit wonders of the 90s. By the artist named Joan Osborne. It was actually written by her guitarist, Eric Bazilian. And she sang it and it mused in typical Gen X style. What if God was one of us? Just a slob like one of us. Just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home. And then in the second verse, it reads as follows. If God had a face, what would it look like? And would you want to see? If seeing meant that you would have to believe in things like heaven and in Jesus and the saints and all the prophets. The song offended some, attracted others. Joan Osborne herself, in singing it, said there were times that she sang it with great reverence and times that she sang it with great rebellion. It just depended on how she felt that day. Well, the Bible answers the question. If seeing God meant that you would have to believe in things like heaven and in Jesus and in the saints and in all the prophets, the answer is yes. Because to see God, you must believe in Jesus. There is no alternative because God was one of us. God became one of us in the person of Jesus Christ. What if God was one of us? It's a question that's 2,000 years passe. Because God did, in fact, become one of us. Back in chapter 1, verse 1, God, after He spoke long ago to the prophets, to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in Son. And Hebrews was written to encourage primarily Jewish followers of Jesus not to lose their focus on Him. One pastor said it was written to Hebrews that Hebrews might not return to being Hebrews but would move forward in Jesus Christ. 30 to 40 years after God became one of us, this letter began to circulate to explain how life in Christ was more than simply, or the life of Christ was more than simply a moment in time. It was more than some distant, irrelevant story. No, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Have you memorized that verse yet? 
Hebrews 13.8. Let's say it together. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. One of the best things ever written and absolutely true. And in verse 1, he writes, For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. For what reason? Well, the writer has just explained the superiority of Jesus to angels as we talked about on Christmas Eve. That Christ is superior. He explained that Christ is God in the flesh. He explained the superiority of of Jesus as the divinity of God Himself because Jesus is God Himself. And now He says, for this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Jesus is superior to angels. And as impressive as angels might seem, remember they are simply servants of the Most High God in the same way that you are if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. I love what the angel says to John in Revelation 19 verse 10. Don't worship me, I'm just a fellow servant of yours. We are serving alongside each other, the angels and the saints. So as impressive as they may seem, they are but servants. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 6 says, But Christ was faithful as a son over His house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm to the end. I mean, do you, do you hear the, the encouragement to hold fast? Pay attention. He'll say later on, fix our eyes. Don't shrink back. It is all about pressing on and moving forward and not sliding, or as he says here, drifting away. The Hebrew writer, we'll just call him the pastor. Because again, is it Barnabas? Is it Luke? Probably not Paul. Is it, is it Apollos? You know, we, we don't know for certain, but we know he's a pastor. We know he's a teacher. And so the pastor has just one more thing to say about angels. But before we get there, a couple of things to note here in verse 1 that I really I like. It caught my attention. It's the use of the word we. Did you see that? For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Because the pastor recognizes something. Drifting is not your problem. It's our problem. Drifting is not the issue of the parishioner. It is a human handicap. And it is pastors, it is parishioners, priests, popes, and persons. It's anybody who claims to be in a relationship with Jesus. We have a tendency to place levels of, I don't know, superiority. Hey, there's only one who's superior and that's Jesus Christ. The rest of us are at risk of the very warning here in this opening verse, and that is drifting away. It is a human tendency to drift, to to slide, to let the guard down, to be faithless. This word, drift away, is pararueo. It's an interesting word. It means to let slide It means to slip away or to glide by. It's not overnight, it's over time. The word implies a gradual carelessness. Perhaps even hardly noticeable a movement from one place to another and you suddenly wake up and you ask yourself the question, see if you've ever asked this, how did I get here? How did I get into this place? A million tiny little decisions or 
A million tiny little uh, just ignorances. A million tiny little oversights. And suddenly you're in a place you never thought you would be. But here you are. How did I get here? Drifting away. Drifting away. It was used, this word, to describe snow slipping off a hillside. And then suddenly it's an avalanche. Or food slipping down the windpipe, and then suddenly you're choking. Or my favorite description, a boat coming loose from its slip in a port and drifting away. Think of that. The boat tied off with ropes, anchored down in a harbor, but the ropes are not securely fastened, and the anchor comes loose as the knots unravel, and the boat begins to drift away, drawn by the tides, out into the sea once again, and it has no direction. And again we wonder, how did we get here? 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, Paul wrote, Keep faith and a good conscience which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. If you're not a believer in Jesus, drifting further away from Jesus is an issue of your very salvation. If you are a follower of Jesus, however, it's a life wreckage issue. Get this. For a follower of Jesus, this is where our lives get into a mess. See, you know and I know, you can be a believer, you can follow Jesus, you can trust in Him, and you can show up at church, and you can still make wreckage out of your life. It doesn't change His grace for you, His love for you, His forgiveness that is extended to you, but it's remarkable how often we wreck ourselves on the rocks. How does that happen? We drifted. We simply drifted. Christian wreckage comes about when we drift from port because we are not paying attention. Yes, we are called to vigilance. Christianity is not about relaxing. It's about resting. It's about peace. It's about comfort in the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. But with that rest and peace and comfort, there is diligence. There is intentionality. There is passion and desire. There is paying much closer attention. What are you telling us we have to pay attention to? Turn over to Hebrews chapter 6. Verse 19. The pastor says, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. A hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Oh, we'll talk about him. This hope is our anchor. What hope? Jesus Christ. To put it simply, the gospel of Jesus is our hope. It's our anchor. Don't drift from the anchor. Don't drift from Jesus. Which is why after all the teaching, you do land in Hebrews 12, verse 2, and He says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. How do I keep from drifting? Keep your eyes on Jesus Christ. Look to Jesus. Talk to Jesus. Walk with Jesus. Pray to Jesus. Spend time in the presence of Jesus. For otherwise, we drift We drift. Based on the content of this sermon, and you can go back to chapter 2, the recipients, these Hebrew Christians, were drifting already. 
drifting back into familiar territory. That's part of the reason we drift, by the way. We drift to what is familiar. We drift to what we know, even if what we know is dangerous. Even if what we know is bad for us. Talking to a sister yesterday who was saying the difference between her Christian life and her life before. She made a comment about this, and I thought it was fascinating, especially because I was thinking about this morning's teaching. And she said, before I was a Christian, she, she said, I remember becoming a Christian, and when I did... Noticing Christian guys and saying, well, I'm a believer myself, and I'm not going to marry one of those Christian guys. They're geeks. (laughs) See, God still had to do a work in her heart. But she said the reason was what she knew, what she was familiar with, was guys who did not treat her well. And to now be around guys who did treat her well didn't feel familiar. We drift back to what's familiar, even if what's familiar is bad for us. We call that dysfunctional behavior. When we return to those things, why are we fighting again, the couple asked. Because you're comfortable with that. Perhaps you were raised in a family where fighting was the norm. And even though it's not good, it's what you know. So we drift back to what we know. I've gotten out of alcoholism, someone might say. But man, when life gets hard, I'm familiar with that place. And so I drift back to what I know. Jesus is our steadfast hope. He is our anchor. And when you feel like your life is unraveling, you fix your eyes on Him rather than drifting back to the old behavior, back to the old things. Comfortable and familiar as they are, they are not healthy. They are not good for you. And again, I'm talking to Christians because we have this weird tendency to make wreckage in our lives. And you wonder, how can a Christian do that? Unless you are a Christian and you've made wreckage and then you go, I can tell you how a Christian does that. Simple. I drifted. Dysfunctional behavior. You know, addictions, conflict, abuse, even sin. We get drawn back to what we know. Jesus says, keep your eyes on me. Just follow me. Watch me. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10.13, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Hey, listen, the way of escape has a name, and His name is Jesus. He is the way of escape. So that we do not drift back into the old things. Man... The whole idea of temptation overtaking you, that's an appropriate word on a New Year's Eve, isn't it? Well, every New Year's Eve I get soused. Well, that doesn't mean you have to. You can fix your eyes on Jesus tonight and have a marvelous time and even remember how wonderful the night was. But for the Hebrew Christians here, the dangerous sea they were slipping back out to was the law. Now think about this. You have been raised in the law, Torah, the Hebrew way, the traditions. You've been raised with that. You've lived with that. It's been indoctrinated in you throughout your life and culture. And suddenly you have the freedom of grace. And grace is marvelous. And grace is wonderful. And you run out beyond the fence in the front yard. And you experience something of the world until the world gets difficult. And then you drift back into the safety of what you know. And that's what they were doing. Safer just to keep the law. Safer just to be there. Well, it's not safer. It's more dangerous because it is not navigable. I don't even know if that's a word, is it? 
navigate, na- navigatable. You can't navigate it. You can't navigate the law. Look at verse 2. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Now, something to notice here that's just a point of interest. He says if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, the old rabbis taught the law was mediated by angels. That's the one more thing I wanted you to note about angels this morning. They mediated the law. Somehow they were involved in the giving of the law. Psalm 68 verse 17 says, The chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them as at Sinai in holiness. As at Sinai. Well, he's not talking about Israel there. He's talking about angels. And the understanding and the assumption is that the Lord was surrounded by angels at Mount Sinai. Deuteronomy 33 verse 2 says the following. Moses said this, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran. And He came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones. Kodesh. At His right hand, there was flashing lightning for them. But the phrase flashing lightning is literally, technically, flaming fire. Flaming fire? Hebrews chapter 1 verse 7, which is also Psalm 104 verse 4. And of the angels he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. The flaming fire around the Lord at Mount Sinai, perhaps? Was it angels? The Bible seems to indicate so. The idea that angels mediated the law is supported also in the New Testament Scriptures, repeated first by Stephen, Acts chapter 7, verse 53, in that magnificent final sermon of Stephen's life, he said, you received the law as ordained by angels and did not keep it. Galatians 3.19, the Apostle Paul said, the law was added because of transgressions having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come, the seed being Jesus, until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. So, angels had something to do with the giving of the law. I just think that's interesting. God has a way of involving others. What a gracious Father. He could do it all Himself. Many things He has done all Himself, but He has a way of involving others. Angels with the giving of the law, and you with the giving of the Gospel. He doesn't have to do it that way. You realize this next year out ahead, if he doesn't have to involve you with the gospel at all, it's your choice. But as far as Jesus is concerned, he wants you in. He wants you to be part of what's being given. Part of the grand story. Well, the angels were. The angels are. But here's the thing. The word spoken through angels proved, note the word, unalterable. Meaning what? Meaning you can't slip by the law. There are no amendments to the law of God. There are no loopholes, no excuses, no escape. It's eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life. You want to try and navigate that? You think you can make it through those seas? Hebrew believers, would you really want to slip back into that kind of risk and danger eternally? 
Go back to the law and you are headed for the rocks. You will be shipwrecked. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38. I will probably repeat this one many times through the study as well. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. I'm not drifting. We are not among those who are to drift, but to press on in Jesus. And yet they were drifting, slipping back to the law. Now, you might say this morning, well, you know, that was their problem. I'm not shrinking into Judaism. You know, I'm not going back to all the the Jewish feasts and, and trying to keep all the law. I'm not doing that. Okay, but what law are you trusting? What law do you slip back to? So I had to deal with that in my own heart this week. Well, what's my law issue? The truth is that the moment anyone bases their hope on their own good behavior, you are keeping your own law. And you can't navigate that. The moment you place your hope in, in something that you do, hey, it's deadly waters. You can't keep that. You can't keep it up. And so we fix our eyes on Jesus. Christians, we do this when our faith is in ourselves. Even when our faith is in the number of verses we can memorize. The number of books we've studied. The amount of times we've listened to Chuck Smith teach through the Bible. You know? Yeah, I've done it three or four times. How many times have you done it? Well, clearly you're not quite as righteous as me. No, you just have a better CD player. I'm just saying. Jesus is the reason this salvation is so great. Because His grace far surpasses the unalterable words spoken by angels. His grace far surpasses the law. Hey, the law is perfect. But His grace navigates it for us. Are you on board with that? Or do we find ourselves drifting away? How did we receive this message of His grace, this so great a salvation? He tells us in verse 3, continuing, After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders, and by various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to His own will. Note that, God also testifying with them. Once again, God is involving people. God is drawing people into the process. God is saying to you and to me this morning, be part of this. Don't just, you know, sit below in the ship. Be on deck. Be involved. Be engaged. I want you to enjoy the fruit of this labor. I want you to be engaged in the process. God testified with them. Well, He says several things about how we received this great salvation, how the Gospel came. First, God spoke to us in Son, in the incarnation of Jesus. In these last days, His life, His teachings, His miracles, and especially His sacrificial death and His glorious resurrection, God spoke the Gospel through Jesus Christ. But it was confirmed, He said, to us, by those who heard. That is eyewitness testimony. And that's critical too. We know that as many as 500 people at one time saw the resurrected Jesus. 500. How many people do you need to testify as witnesses in a court case before you start to believe that there's some truth here? 
hundreds of people who saw Jesus resurrected, who witnessed to and testified to what happened. And we are part of that continuing testimony across 2,000 years. We continue to testify of the truth that was handed on to us by those who saw, those who heard. Eyewitness testimony. But that wasn't enough. God didn't only send Jesus. He didn't only then testify it through these eyewitnesses. But then He confirmed it supernaturally. Just to make sure nobody missed it. He concerned, Look at what it says. By signs, wonders, various miracles, gifts of His Holy Spirit, according to His own will. I would encourage you to think all those through. Study that out. And to consider what that means even today in these last days. And that is the confirmation of these things through these gifts of the Holy Spirit, through miracles, wonders, and signs. Mark chapter 16 doesn't tell us that the signs prove it. It tells us that the signs follow our faith. We have faith. And the signs are going to happen. These things are going to come. People are going to see amazing things and and things will be confirmed by these things that they see. But it's the faith and it's the testimony that goes out first. Testimony of Jesus, the eyewitnesses, and then these signs and wonders, these supernatural things that they began to see in the world, all of this verified the gospel. Why are you sitting on this so long, Rick? Because people today say, What's the verification? What's the truth? And why doesn't God just tell us? What does He have to do? I would ask. He comes in person. He has witnesses testify of it. And then He pours out supernatural gifts, powers, miracles, signs, all that on them so that the world would see and understand why is there a Christianity still growing in the world today, 2,000 years later? It's because God took great care to testify to all this as absolutely true. John 14.12, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, He who believes in Me, the works that I do, He will also do. And greater works than these, He will do because I go to the Father. Now that's interesting. We want to know what the greater works are. Because Jesus said the things I do, they'll do. Healing the blind. Helping the deaf hear again. So physical, supernatural healing. Casting out demons. Raising the dead. Yeah, Jesus did all these things. He said, you're going to do these things. But then he said, and greater things than these you will do. So does that mean I get to raise two people from the dead at once? I get to, I raised a whole family, you know? Well, Well, greater things. Listen, the greatest works of God are not parlor tricks for us to enjoy at home. In fact, the greatest work of God is changed lives, changing lives. That's the greater work. Don't get hung up on the supernatural. Hey, I love supernatural things. I trust and believe that the Lord still works in us and in this world supernaturally. His Spirit is active and engaged. Don't question that. And if you do, you haven't been paying attention to Jesus. But the reality is the greatest work of God is when my life is changed and causes change to happen in someone else's life. You know, yesterday we had Bob Young's memorial service. And it freaked some people out. I can tell you this. There were some people there who knew Bob for 86 of his 89 years. 
And here I am yesterday talking about his faith in Jesus, which was the last three. The last three. And his family, and Leslie can tell you about this, she said the difference, three years ago, Christmas Eve, Bob Young gave his heart to Jesus Christ. Prayed to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. And Leslie and Gary will tell you, uh, in so many different ways, the change was dramatic in what they saw in him. In his peace, in his comfort, in his wisdom, in his love, in the way he interacted with family. Just a remarkable difference that Jesus made in this 86-year-old man's life until he went on to be with Jesus at 89. But there were people at the memorial yesterday hearing this going, that's not Bob. I know Bob Young. That's not Bob Young. And it was really confusing for him. Changed lives change lives. It opened up a whole conversation. I know in Leslie's home, a whole entire conversation about Jesus and about where Bob really was and what really took place and how can you say this? And by the way, why do you have such peace in the passing of your father? And all of this was, was swirling around this concept that Bob is a changed man who is home with Jesus right now and I'm a little jealous. Changed lives, changed lives. Listen, people who give their lives to Jesus, sometimes they're a little embarrassed to go back to being around friends and family who knew them before. Because you know what they're going to say. They're going to look at you and go, come on. I know you say you had this Jesus thing going on, but I know you. I know what you did. I know how... You're not kidding anybody. No, I'm not. You're right. That's who I was. That is not who I am. He has changed me. Don't you understand? Everything's different now. I say embrace the reality of your life being changed. That's the best testimony you've got. Don't, don't shy away from talking about it. Don't avoid people. Oh no, they're going to know. They know who I was. That's great. Because it's the change in you that is the mighty work of God that He will use for the sake of the Gospel. So the first word spoken at Mount Sinai was the law and it required obedience and it guaranteed condemnation. The final word spoken in Son is grace. It requires faith and it guarantees salvation. And that's what we're into here. The law was given through Moses, John 1.17. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Now, let's get started with the sermon for today. <laughs> That's all intro. I mean, it really is. To, to this point, we pivot now from the contrast of Christ with angels to the comparison of Jesus to mankind. Watch this, verse 5. For He did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. This is great. I, I have to make a point about this. It says the world to come. You might notice in your margin, if it gives a different translation, it's the inhabited earth. So technically in the Greek, it should say, He did not subject to angels the inhabited earth concerning which we are speaking. So why do the translators say the world to come instead of the inhabited earth? Because He's talking about the world to come. How do we know that? Well, for one thing, He says concerning which we are speaking. So all you got to do is start to draw back into the first part of chapter 2 and chapter 1 and understand what is He talking about here? What's he talking about? 
he's talking about this what we're what's coming, what we're heading to. Concerning that which we are speaking, he did not subject to angels. That is, he did not give angels authority over the world to come. Well, okay, so who got that authority? Hold that thought. The current world, our world even today, was originally subjected to angelic administration and oversight. Where do you get that? Deuteronomy 32, verse 8. I'm going to read to you the the Septuagint translation. That's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. About 250 or so years before Jesus, Jewish scholars wrote the Septuagint, translating from the Hebrew. This verse is thought to be the most accurate meaning of Deuteronomy 32, verse 8. Listen to it. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when He separated the children of man, He set the bounds of the peoples according to the number of the angels of God. The angels of God. Now, technically, literally, the Hebrew word there is bene. Sons. According to the sons of God. Deuteronomy 32, 8, at that time and in Torah law, when you said the sons of God, you were talking about angels. And so, there's something here. It's interesting. The implication is there was spiritual authority over various nations and people groups that was parceled out according to the number of angels. Some are good. Some are bad. And we even see this verified in Daniel chapter 10, verses 20 and 21, where Gabriel, the angel, describes the angelic authority of the prince of Persia. He mentions the prince of Greece. And he mentions Michael, who is the great prince over Israel, both the land and the people. So there's this angelic administration of various locations on the earth. I believe it's still in play. Which is why our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the powers, the world forces of this darkness, and against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. There is a spiritual reality, and there is a spiritual administration, and there is a spiritual threat that takes place all around the world. The point is that God doled out the angels for a certain degree of administrative oversight of the world. How are they doing? Not so well. Oh, Rick, how can you say that about angels? Don't you know we're going to judge the angels? I'm just getting a head start. (laughs) My point is this. Though there was angelic administration, they didn't handle it well for one specific reason. Get this. The angels didn't understand grace. They didn't know grace. They were made to worship. They were created to be servants of God, period. They didn't have the option. Oh, doesn't mean they didn't have free will, because some acted on it and broke from the Lord, Satan being angel number one who did that, but others who would fall with him, who would turn evil against him. But they didn't understand grace, because they had never needed grace. They were just made for a purpose. We were given free will from birth and offered the choice of grace to understand grace. And God even uses this whole situation of grace on the planet to teach the angels who didn't understand or comprehend it. When you don't know grace, you don't lead very well. When you don't understand grace, you don't administrate things correctly. But the world to come... 
will be subjected to a different authority. A government of people redeemed by grace. Talking to someone else just yesterday, I had some great conversations about this whole concept that the older you get and the more you understand grace, the more willing you are to give it to others. And I was remembering as a young pastor myself how much harsher I was, even even with those who worked with me, than I am today. The difference is grace. The difference is understanding what grace has done in my life. And when we are under the gracious rule of Jesus Christ, we will join Him in administering and being in authority over the next age. In the coming kingdom. Revelation 1.6, He made us to be a kingdom, priest to His God and Father. To Him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Revelation 5.10, Revelation chapter 20, verse 6, also verify this. Tell us we will rule and reign with Him in that kingdom. So the current administration is angels, but he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning about which or concerning which we are speaking. And here's where the sermon takes this dramatic turn from the divinity of Jesus in the opening verses to the superiority of Jesus over angels following that to now the question that stands before us today. What if God were one of us? Divinity, superiority, humanity. Look at verse 6. But one has testified somewhere saying, What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. By the way, does this bother anybody else? The Hebrew writer does this. Verse 6, but one has testified somewhere. Don't you know? I know who wrote this. It was David. It's Psalm 8. Doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that one out. And yet this this writer of scripture says one has testified somewhere. I can't remember. I don't know where the location is in the Bible. I mean, how many of you have been there? You know? You're quoting a verse and you don't have a clue where it's from, but you know it's there. Like cleanliness is next to godliness, right? You can find that one in the first book of opinions. It's not even in the Bible. But here this 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 author or this writer at least of scripture says one is testified somewhere. Okay, again, it's David in Psalm 8. Why doesn't this pastor credit David? And in fact, for all the Old Testament quotes in this entire sermon, do you realize he only gives one nod? There's only one time in the whole book where he says, this is the person who said this. Well, what's that? It's Hebrews chapter 12, verse 21, where it says, So terrible was the sight that Moses said, I'm full of fear and trembling. That's the only credit. And I'm sure Moses is like, why did you have to credit me that? (laughs) Listen, why does he just say someone has testified somewhere rather than giving us the zip code in the Scriptures? Because for this writer, the Scriptures were all divine. Because for this writer, he understood something. God is the author. Who wrote it down ultimately is inconsequential. 
doesn't matter if it was David or Solomon or one of the prophets or one of the other guys back there in the Hebrew. It doesn't matter. We know this is biblical. We know it's scripture. We know it's true. And we can verify that simply by turning to Psalm 8. Why don't you do that? Psalm 8 in your Bibles. As we get started with this morning's teaching. Who is the Son of Man that the Hebrew writer is talking about in chapter 2? Now that's a critical question. Who is the Son of Man that is being referred to? It is vital to understand that in verses 6-8 through of Hebrews chapter 2, it is not Jesus. What? No, it's not Jesus. If you misunderstand that, you miss some powerful truth. So keep that in mind. Psalm 8. David. David may have been stretched out sleeplessly under a vast starry night. I mean, I can see him there, perhaps even in the hills outside of Bethlehem. After he was filled with the Holy Spirit, I'm convinced because the Psalms are Holy Spirit spoken. But even as a young man of 17, he had already been filled with the Spirit of God. I can see him out there with his flocks in the fields, looking up at a brilliant starry night. And he wrote down what Kyle and Delich call, quote, the praise of the Creator's glory sung by the starry heavens to puny man. Great title. Psalm 8, verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth, who have displayed Your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infant, infants and nursing babes, You have established strength because of Your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. Now hold that thought. He's just considering this. He's looking at it. He's blown away by it. The vastness of it. He is enthralled with starry-eyed wonder at the eminence of God. The eminence of God. The sheer royalty of God. You can jot that down. Those first three verses of Psalm 8 speak of the eminence of God Himself. Like David would write in Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. Their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. And by some estimates, there are as many as 10 trillion stars, no, 10 trillion galaxies in the universe. That's a lot of stars, folks. The average galaxy, like our Milky Way, is estimated to contain 100 billion stars. Times 10 trillion in the universe? And these are just our estimates. It may be far more. Consider the power that can throw stars into place. Consider how awesome and amazing and wonderful it is. And David said, God did it with His fingers. Let's see, Alpha Centauri. I mean, amazing. And he's overwhelmed and he's blown away and suddenly a thought hits David like a two-ton meteor to the brain. Verse 4, What is man that you take thought of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? He could have written, We're a bunch of who's down in Whoville. I mean, we're like dots on a speck compared to all this wonder. But he becomes even more amazed. Not only are we 
these beings that shouldn't even be considered by a God of such grandeur and eminence and glory. He says, yet you have made Him a little lower than God. You crown Him with glory and majesty. You make Him to rule over the works of your hands. You put all things under His feet, all sheep and oxen and also beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. Note that the animals did not have human rights. And in verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. And this psalm is called the psalm of the exaltation of man. Humanity. It is a stunning work because it begins with the absolute eminence of God and it ends with the exaltation of man. In the psalm, scruffy mankind is lifted up as the ruling crown of God's creation. The original bearers of the divine rule and authority of God on earth, while the angels were to administrate things in the spiritual places, mankind was supposed to have some kind of authority here on earth, at least over the animal kingdom and each other, to administrate righteousness. That was the original plan. How are we doing? How have we done so far? We couldn't even make it work in the Garden of Eden where there was one rule. Couldn't handle it. Now go back to Hebrews chapter 2, keeping Psalm 8 in mind because it's the psalm being quoted. In Hebrews 2, verses 6 through 8, he draws directly off of Psalm 8. And if we say that the Son of Man in the psalm and right here refers to Jesus, we miss two huge vital truths that you've got to get today. Number one, we will miss the love of God. If we say this is about Jesus, we miss the love of God. What do you mean? Verse 7, it says, You have made Him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned Him with glory and honor. Note this, He made us lower for a little. Lower for a little. Lower than the angels, it says here. Wait a minute, Rick. We got a discrepancy because I noted back in Psalm 8, perhaps you did, that it says He made us a little lower than God. But here it says He made us a little lower than the angels. So which one is it? Well, both work. But if you want to be technical, yes, Hebrews 2 says a little lower than angels. Psalm 8 says a little lower than God. And the reason is the word God in the Hebrew in Psalm 8 is Elohim, which directly translated is God's. Realize that every time Elohim refers to God the Father, it's really God's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. See, because our God is triune, so He is always referred to in the plural form. But in the psalm, that word Elohim, not only does it refer to God Himself in His triune plurality, but Elohim also can refer to angels, or judges, or spiritual rulers in the heavenly places. The word is used variously like that, not exclusively for Yahweh. And you can see this in the Hebrew Scriptures. So the Septuagint, that Greek translation, translates Psalm 8, angels. Which is why we see it translated angels here, because when Jesus was walking in at the time of the writer of Hebrews, they primarily used the Septuagint. So whether it's He made us lower than God or lower than the angels, well, both, like I said, works. 
Understand this. So we are lower than the angels in that angels are 100% spiritual beings. We are spiritual and physical. And because of that, our flesh inhibits us. Inhibits our true spiritual self. So technically we are a little lower than the angels, at least for a little while, he says. Not forever. We won't always be that way. That is, we won't always be a little lower than the angels. That's really cool. 1 Corinthians 6.3 tells us, Do you not know that we will judge the angels? This is now the third time I've quoted it, and I hope some angels aren't getting uncomfortable with that. And I would remind the angels as I remind you this morning, Hey, I have been raised on grace, which changes everything. So temporarily, we're a little lower than the angels for a little while, understanding that we will always be lower than God. Always. He made us for a little while lower. But he goes on and says, You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Who is that? Mankind. All of us. God gave us... Lordship over creation. He made us a little lower than the angels, and then He put us in charge of this planet. Lordship over creation. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, God blessed them, and He said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Rule, He said to Adam and Eve. Why? God's intention was there would be a rule of righteousness. Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. Note this. He says to Noah and company, be fruitful and multiply. This is after the flood now. Fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all fish of the sea into your hand they are given. That's funny. The fish of the sea into your hand they are given. I saw a video of a guy trying to get a hook out of a shark's mouth and the shark grabbed him. So... Clearly his hand was given to that fish of the sea. (laughs) But every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you, even as I gave the green plant. Notice what happened there? Both are statements of the rule of mankind over this planet. But they are statements in decay. The first one said, I want you to rule over everything. Every animal and every green plant. I want you to eat all the plants, the fruits, vegetables. It's all for you. But it wasn't meat. In the second one, now, there's fear. There's meat eating. Something's changed. Mankind has already begun the process of decay. And in verse 8, it says, You have put all things in subjection under His feet. For in subjecting all things to Him, He left nothing that is not subject to Him. But now, we do not yet see all things subjected to Him can't be Jesus. It can't be Jesus. Why do you say that? Ephesians chapter 1 verse 21 tells us He is above, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things in subjection under His feet. All things are subjected to Jesus Christ. All things are not subjected to us right now. I mean, look around. Does this world look like it's under our control? Do you think Jesus Himself lost control? (laughs) 
You see, since the fall of man, the status of mankind is this. We live in a world out of our control. I can't even control my own children. And every parent who has been a parent very long understands that. Now my daughter thinks that she can control my grandson Silas. I just say, give it time. Give it time. Seriously, we live in a world that we cannot control. We live in a world that though the original intention was that it would be in subjection under our feet, it is not in subjection under our feet. This is not the world to come that we live in right now. It is a world in chaos, a world that rejected Jesus. So what exactly does verse 8 here mean? Get this, God made us lower for a little while. He gave us lordship over creation and we lost it. We lost it. What has our rule ever produced but wars and rumors of wars and oppression and domination and pride and terror and fear? But wait, but wait. Go back to verse 6. What is man that you remember him or the son of man that you are concerned about him? Remember is the Hebrew word zakar. It means mindful. God is thinking about us. We're on his mind. And concerned about. What is man, the son of man, that you are concerned about him? That's pakad. One of my favorite Hebrew words ever. Pakad. Because it means to visit. What is the son of man that you visit him? Listen, God was mindful of us and he visited us. And if I say that Hebrews 2 and Psalm 8, that the Son of Man here refers to Jesus, I miss two vital truths. And the first one is the love of God in Christ Jesus. That He was mindful of us and that He visited us. You, me, the Son of Man. He came to us. Visiting this planet. That is the love of God. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. He loves us. But if I say that Son of Man is not us, it's Jesus, we miss something else that is marvelous here and absolutely vital, and it is the wonder of God made man. Not only the love of God in Christ for man, but the wonder of God coming as Christ made man. Look at verse 9, but we do see Him. And here you can start capitalizing the Him. We do see Him who was made for a little while lower than the angels. Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. You see, just when we were about to be shipwrecked and sunk, God sent Jesus. God dropped anchor in Jesus Christ. He came into this world as Jesus Christ. And while we were still helpless, Romans 5, verse 6, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. But God demonstrates His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What if God was one of us? And we're going to finish answering that question next Sunday. Let's stand together. The question for all of us this morning is simply this. If God had a face, what would it look like?
And would you want to see if seeing meant that you would have to believe in Jesus? Father, I believe in Jesus. I believe that you are Lord and Christ. I believe that you became one of us. You dwelt on this planet. I believe that you put on flesh and blood. I believe in your teachings, Jesus, your ministry, your actions, your miracles. I believe in your death, taking my place on the cross. I believe in your resurrection, Lord Jesus, breaking the power of death once and for all. I believe in all of this, and I believe in your glorious ascension, and I believe that you are ready to come back. And I believe that we see God in your face, the face of Jesus. Father, my prayer for us this morning is simply that we would not drift away. That our attention would would not be drawn to temporal things, but to the eternal Christ who is the same yesterday and today and forever. May our faith in You be strengthened this morning. Our desire for You be stronger. Our anchoring to You be solidified. And as we look to days ahead, whether it's this world or the world to come, may we always look first to You, Lord Jesus. Holy Spirit, work this miracle among us. In Jesus' name, Amen.